Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with my co-host, the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. And this is the show where you get to hear the greatest interviews you've never heard. Uh Or maybe you heard them once and you forgot about them. Or you made a list of them and you left it in that place where all your passwords are. But... (laughs) (laughs) This week, we have a little twist on an old theme... We have a brand new interview. This this will be one of the first times we've done this, right, Tom? That's right. So mostly, Christopher, as you said, our interviews come from our interview archives, and those archives are like 60 years deep, but also cover some recent artists like, you know, Shawn Mendes and Lady Gaga and Rihanna and, and Taylor Swift. But for the most part, we rely on the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and some from the 90s uh, as we tell the story of these artists and play their words. And sometimes they have a lot of foreshadowing, and sometimes they are tinged with tragedy because that person's life was cut short, all that stuff. So that's in the archive. This interview doesn't actually come from our archive. It comes from the artist themselves, and that artist is a little-known guy by the name of James Paul McCartney. So McCartney just a few weeks ago released McCartney 3, and he sends out this electronic press kit. And I went, oh, this is a new Paul McCartney interview, and we've got to play it because it's a lot of fun. That's not all, Tom. We have a fantastic 1995 interview with Tears for Fears. Well, actually, just either a tear or a fear. I'm not sure which he is. Roland Orzabal. Uh, The interview (laughs) itself is very interesting. He talks about the Seeds of Love record. My, what a groundbreaker that was. Yeah. And he also talks about which of their biggest hits he can't stand. Oh. I love when they trash themselves, right? It just, you know, makes it so easy for everybody else. Best of all, though, seriously, best Beatles imitation you will ever hear, okay? Yes, Next to your Ringo imitation, uh, can you do that for us now? Because uh, I think he's going to put you to shame in a few minutes. I like to sit in front of the telly and go bang, bang, you know. Yeah. <laughs> We've, it's, it's already gone off the rails here, hasn't it? It already has. Yeah. You know, so you definitely want to stick around for Roland Orzabal of Tears for Fears doing an impression of one of the Beatles. It's so funny. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit. Christopher, remember the band Arrested Development from the early 90s? Yeah, very much so. We have a brand new interview with the leader of that band, Speech. I talked to him about those glory days, and we also talk about his new music, and one song in particular in which he addresses the events of January 6th of this year in Washington, D.C., which leads us to a bigger discussion about protest music going all the way back to the 1960s. It's amazing to me when an artist can react almost in real time to current events Mm -hmm. like that. Absolutely. And actually, he put out the song like a matter of days later. And it is a really good song. We'll play just a smidgen of it uh, when we get to that part. Speech from Arrested Development coming up a little bit later. And finally, Tom, it's time for a rematch of TJ versus the VJ as you and I face yeah. off in a test of musical skills. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's skills great. with a Z, ladies and gentlemen, if you're in Canada. Okay. And a Z, otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> so buckle up, it's going to be fun. Let's get started with Paul McCartney. Live and let die. From 1973, what a great song. Paul McCartney and Wings and Live and Let Die. Did you ever see him live with the performance of that show with the explosions and stuff? It's very exciting. It is funny because I've only seen Paul live once. 
and I enjoyed it very much. But by far, the highlight of that show was his performance of Live and Let Die with all the explosions. It was so exciting, and it was so powerful. We took our daughter to her very first concert, a Paul McCartney concert, because she loved his music, and she loved Paul. (laughs) And she fell asleep because she was little, you know? She was only five. (laughs) But she woke up with a start. At the beginning of Live and Let Die. Oh, I and bet. Loved, and love the rest of the show. So, Christopher, let me ask you something, because I, you know, I have two sons. They're 25 and 23, and I've taken them to a few concerts over the years. But when you took your daughter to a concert for the very first time, instead of, like, it blowing their mind, like it may have, was she stunned like the way my boys were? Like, they were just wide-eyed, open mouth, just staring at the stage, and they weren't, like, really reacting or dancing or anything? Like, that's how my boys reacted. How did your daughter react? Well, I think Rachel was taking in the totality of the experience. You know, being in this... um, This was in France at uh, a big arena show. (laughs) And, you know, so just... Being there with all these thousands of people, she yeah, I don't think she blinked. And it is funny because this is a really bad comparison, but the very first show <laughs> I took my oldest son Dallas to was Barney at Toronto Skydome, right? <laughs> and it was a and it was a big show. And he just stood up yeah. and he had been watching Barney for like for a year at that point and didn't miss one single episode. We rented all the videos for him and everything. And Barney came out and I'm looking at him, and he's just like, he's not smiling. He's just <laughs> staring. He doesn't quite yeah. know what to make of it, right? And it was just, it was such a great thing. And it's funny, his first big rock, quote-unquote, rock show was Shania Twain. And Shania was spectacular. <laughs> it was Toronto's Air Canada Centre in Toronto at the time. Boy, we really got sidetracked in a hurry there, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, you're making me nostalgic for the fact that we missed the Elmo sharing tour, so... Um. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Paul McCartney. Yes, Tom, he'll tell you that he had no intention of doing a solo album, and it just happened because of the times we're in, but I think this is a more deliberate person than that. (laughs) It won't surprise anyone that Paul McCartney found ways to be creative while hunkering down with his family, and that he's far from done artistically. You know, it, it is really cheering to hear his love for the craft that still burns in him. McCartney 1 was recorded over 50 years ago. Wow. Do you believe that? He made a sort of a follow-up about 10 years later, but the new album is truly the follow-up stylistically. Mm-hmm. From a brand new interview, here's the latest from Sir Paul. So here's what happens when you don't intend to make a record. I didn't know I was making an album with this one. I was just in the studio and I was kind of finishing up bits and pieces that I meant to finish up. But I suddenly had time with the lockdown or rockdown, as we call it. And I was actually just doing it for my own fun. But suddenly, there was enough for an album. And uh, I realized, because I played all the instruments and released uh, McCartney 1 in 70, McCartney 2 in 80, I thought, this could be McCartney 3, released in 2020. Okay, so needless to say, that interview is from late last year, 2020. And it's typical Paul McCartney to make a new album sound almost accidental. And it's even more Paul to refer to the lockdown as the rockdown. I don't care how corny he sometimes gets. I love Paul. You remember how some people were going to perfect their sourdough bread recipe during lockdown? Well, Paul recorded an album, right? Yeah, sourdough, vinyl. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Here's a day in the life of Paul. 
Well, I was locked down with my daughter Mary and her family. So that meant I had four of my grandchildren in the house with me for quite a few months. So my typical day would be to just get up, uh, organize some breakfast, chat to the kids, uh, see if I could get them off the PlayStation, virtually impossible, and then get over to the studio and just have fun. And then I would come home, um, then we'd have some dinner cooked by my marvelous daughter, Mary, who is a very good cook. Uh, and then I go to bed. I love knowing that the world's most famous musician is kind of like the rest of us, but also that the world's richest musician doesn't care that he's rich. He only cares about making more music and making sure he gets all these ideas recorded so that he can make more music. You know, Tom, working with your daughter can be special. And yes, daughters can boss dads around. It's always great being photographed by Mary because obviously we're, we're really comfortable with each other. And her style is like her mom's, Linda, which is to make whoever's being photographed feel comfortable. And then she bossed me around. Now, you know, normally anyone else, I'd go, whoa, whoa. But she can boss, I'm just dad. You know, so you can boss your dad around. Oh, I love it. That's great. <laughs> it is great. This is the story of the prolific songwriter. Yeah, I've always got uncompleted material, you know. Because the thing is, with iPhones these days, you can put any idea down very quickly and you don't have to finish it. So my phone is full of little ideas. I probably spoiled for choice. Okay, like seriously, how many great songs, great melodies, great lyrics can one guy have before he runs out of ideas, this guy is 78 years old and is creatively putting the rest of us to utter shame. It's wild. Well, some people would say he did run out many years ago. I, I don't <laughs> agree with that. Well, I know, and I don't agree with that. No. <laughs> okay. It's, it's like John Lennon saying that Elvis died when he went in the army, you know. Yes. Um, that's just He's just being cruel. You know, I just want to point yeah. out, you and I have talked about this before, and that is just the song, Silly Love Songs, by itself. And I know that song is much maligned, but I heard it the other day and Christopher, it has at least four massive hooks in it. Most people wouldn't come up with that many in their career. And he came up with four of them in a five minute song. More hooks than a tackle box. Would you go that far? <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Anyway, like I said, he's putting us all to shame. Well, you know, my theory is that creativity is a muscle. And it, yeah. if you stay in shape and you continue to work at it, that you can continue to be creative. That makes sense. Here are some plans for a busy man. I'm involved in a full-length feature film, an animation film called High in the Clouds for Netflix. So that's exciting. I've just got involved in a musical. I've got the Beatles film that Peter Jackson's been making. And I've seen little bits from that. It's a very warm, affectionate film, and it shows the Beatles working. Um, and something he sent me the other day to just see, it was the birth of the song Get Back, where I'm just noodling around on the bass, turn, chicka turn, chicka turn, I'm going, whoa, 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 whoo, just doing anything. You hear that it becomes Get Back, and then I've got a new grand dude book, a children's book. So there's plenty to keep me busy. In fact, there's too much. If you haven't seen the trailer for Get Back, you've got to see it. 
even though oh, it comes yeah. from the recording of that, you know, the Let It Be album and the movie that came with it, the spirit of this new film shows the Beatles at their best instead of at their worst. And it actually looks amazing and really kind of comforting to see them getting along and being creative and goofing around. It looks really warm. Director Peter Jackson is slaving away in New Zealand to get that done. I'm really excited to see it. Paul McCartney, brand new interview with Paul on Famous Lost Words. Speaking of Beatles, we just happened to have a mid-90s interview with one of the guys from Tears for Fears, and he does one of the best Beatle imitations you will ever hear. (laughs) Next. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Just a reminder to get caught up on past episodes of the show, like our incredible recent two-part Motown special. Yeah. Our show about one-hit wonders. We also have two all-80s episodes and a super 1970s show. Okay, back to the regular programming. Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Tears for Fears from 1985 on Famous Lost Words. Tom, Roland Orsabal and Kurt Smith from Bath in England formed Tears for Fears in 1981 from the ashes of a group called History of Headaches. (laughs) (laughs) Sparing us having to introduce their wonderful music with such a hideous band name. Oh, yeah. Their second album, Songs from the Big Chair in 85, featured the hits Shout and Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And that one hit number one on Billboard, with the latter being named the best British single of 1986. So the band kind of Mm. peaked creatively with The Seeds of Love, which I think is their masterpiece. I mean, I love their earlier week, but that that one is just one of those songs that every time I listen to it, it reveals something else. Yeah. That came out in 89, and it was an album that supposedly cost a million pounds to make. And... You know, the production is elaborate enough that you think, yeah, that's entirely possible. I know a lot of people love songs from the big chair, and I do too, with, uh, you know, those songs, the big hits that you're talking about in Head Over Heels. There's also songs like The Working Hour. But boy, oh boy, The Seeds of Love is sensational. There's a song called Woman in Chains. Right, yeah. Which is as good as any song that they ever put together. Yeah. As you can imagine, Tom... The good times couldn't last. (laughs) The guys split up in 1991 for the usual reasons, money, creative direction, corrupt management. You know, they ticked all the boxes. (laughs) But then they reunited, yes, in 2000. Yay! And they've toured together ever since. They had a great run, made some memorable pop classics. And during the interregnum, Roland toured as Tears for Fears on his own and shared some insights in this interview with Dale Smith from 1995. He starts with a great story about the origins of Seeds of Love. I was um, driving down the M4 motorway, which runs from uh, the West Country to London in England. And uh, there was this program on Radio 4. Radio 4 is this kind of rather uh, highbrow chat show, chat radio mm-hmm. in, in England. And they were talk, talking about this, uh, this guy who was going around the British Isles, copywriting all of these... Uh, songs, that have, the traditional songs that have been passed down from generation to generation by, by word of mouth and that kind of stuff. You mean things like happy birthday and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a little Something more, like, yeah. yeah, but along those lines. Okay. And the, all the ones that were a little more hidden. And he, he, he came across this um, gardener who was called Mr. England. This is true. Okay. And uh, Mr. England sang him a song which was called The Seeds of Love. And I thought, this is fantastic. He was a gardener. 
and he's singing the seeds of love. And that's really, I had that title for a long, long time before I was uh, struck with this rather inspired idea of, of um, ripping off John, John Lennon and <laughs> making a song which, uh, what I wanted to do was really make a, like a protest song against the uh, current uh, political regime, which at the time was uh, Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to try and evoke memories of the, the 60s when Britain was great and the inflation was low and we had the Beatles and Harold Wilson was the Prime Minister. Sowing the Seeds of Love, 1989, Tears for Fears. That's so Beatlesque. Great songs from a great album. And they also released some amazing songs even earlier than Big Chair from their first album when they did Pale Shelter, Mad World, and Change. That's quite a body of work. When you consider over the space of about eight, nine years, they created some of the best songs of that decade. Yeah, I think they're one of the uh, the most important bands from that entire era. Um, if only when you hear how well those songs uh, stand up. Tom, this is a jam-packed clip where we find out that Roland really doesn't care for Cheers for Fear's biggest hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started. And then he has the best story of a star with two R's sighting ever. We mean Ringo, of course. I mean, if you look back now over yeah. the previous albums, say starting back when you first yeah. became big in North America, because sure. that's what we're familiar with. No, it, it was all, yeah, it was all kind of... It's no everybody wants to rule the world. No, well, it's, I mean, the thing is this... I don't actually like that song very much. And so, it's, you know, how can I continue? So if I don't want to make music I don't like, and uh, it's that kind of stuff I feel has had its day. And uh, I want to move in this direction because, I don't know, maybe I'm getting older, maybe I'm just uh, becoming more aggressive as I get older. I don't know why. But I, I, I'm really not the same guy that wrote all that stuff. Did you feel you have to shake things up along the way because you were you were almost being people wanted to typecast you into that cute little poppy duo? Oh look, it's a wham with a single yeah, edge. Two two puffs and a synth. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's one puff and a guitar synth. And so, uh, no, uh, I uh, <laughs> no, I just um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the thing is you have to keep up with yourself. It's not just the the music scene or whatever's going on, and. Uh, I've always wanted, you know, it's it's just a fantastic thing to be able to express yourself in music. And that's how I felt when I was uh, 18, 19, 20. In those days, I was a lot more trapped. This album, for me, Raul and the Kings of Spain, is, is just much more human. You brought back Alita Adams for a guest appearance on this that's one. That's true, yeah. And also I saw in here, and it's intriguing, Barbara and Ringo, next time bring your own tea bag. I saw in there. Now, is that the Barbara and Ringo that we're all thinking of? It is, actually, because... Um, we wrote most of these songs in uh, the south of France. We rented a villa right on the Mediterranean. Ooh. And uh, one of the luxuries of... <laughs> Again, of being <laughs> in this industry. Being in this industry. <laughs> and we started writing. And uh, this agent kept sort of ringing me up and saying, we need to bring somebody round um, to, to, because we need to sell the house for, for August. Now, this place is a lot of money, and August... To, to rent for August is thousands of pounds. Thousands. Tens of thousands of for pounds. For one month. Yeah, for one month. And so she, she rang up, and as usual, I stopped work, sat outside, and waited for these people to turn up to see what kind of millionaire is going to move in for August. And so uh, 
this guy comes in and he's got like this beard and he's got these shades on and this big nose and <laughs> wait a minute and i go oh my god it's ringo <laughs> and he was with um, a very tall londoner called hillary and so i'm like hillary sat chat chatting to me while ringo's going around and he just starts cracking all these jokes he goes it's very private here i said yeah yeah he goes i see a lot of boats in the bay i said yeah he goes, they're not journalists are they I said, no, they, say, they leave you alone. I said, yeah, they leave me alone. He goes, they'd be bothering me a lot more if, if it wasn't for that Paul McCartney. <laughs> so he's, he's going on all about this stuff. And I'm like, I'm going, my God, it's Ringo. And while, all the time we were doing secrets, writing secrets at the time, and it's got this Ringo drum fill. And I think, I hope he doesn't want me to play him anything because he'll hear himself. And uh, so then he, just as he's leaving, he goes, thanks for the cup of tea. Because I hadn't offered him anything. Because I was just, like, nervous. And he goes, I brought my own tea bag. <laughs> and, um, which he hadn't, he was joking. And, uh, and then the next time he came round, he came round, he brought his wife, Barbara. And uh, they all sat down, we gave him a cup of, cup of tea. But, you see, he's off stimulants. Oh, and we gave, him some, we gave him some uh, Earl Grey, and he said, I'll be buzzing all the way back to Monte Carlo. <laughs> you know, it's... it's <laughs> So you had tea with Ringo Starr. I had tea with Ringo. Yeah. But you, it's it's amazing to sit here and see somebody who's, you know, reached your level of success, and yet you're still in awe when somebody of Ringo's oh, yeah. stature comes in. Absolutely. It really puts you back, it almost puts you back in our camp, really. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's kind of a nice little But he's a, he's a great guy. He's fantastic. Okay, definitely one of my favorite clips from the archives, Roland Orzabal. First of all, telling us that he doesn't really care for everybody wants to rule the world. Okay, dude. Although I'm sure he's not complaining about the money that song has generated since then. And then he does singularly the best Ringo Starr (laughs) imitation I have ever heard. Isn't that great? It's fantastic. I'm hanging it up now. Thanks, Roland. Yeah. (laughs) Just a shout out to my friend and colleague, Doug Thompson, who found that interview for me. I knew it existed in the archives, but I could not find it. I remember that interview fondly. I particularly remember the Ringo accent. And after some digging, Doug found it and sent it my way. So I just want to give him a great shout out. Thanks very much, Doug. Good find. That's great. Tears for Fears on Famous Lost Words. Still to come, it's the long-awaited rematch of TJ versus the VJ as Tom and I face (laughs) each other in the ultimate showdown of obscure and useless musical knowledge. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic, and we are mere moments away from the continuing grudge match between Tom and I that we call TJ versus the VJ. But first, Tom has a brand new interview. That's People Every Day, a massive hit from the summer of 1992 by the Grammy-winning band Arrested Development. A few days ago, I spoke to the leader of that group, Speech. So, Speech, let's go back to the early 90s with the rest of development. You guys release your first album, three years, five months, and two days in the life of, and it instantly catapulted all of you to fame. So you sell millions, you win Grammys, and you made an imprint on the culture. What do you remember most from that time? For me personally, it was an incredible time of diversity of music. You had the grunge scene or whatever you want to call it, you know, sort of like Nirvana and things like that. You had Arrested Development on the hip-hop scene, which we were expanding the boundaries of hip-hop. 
and you had R&B that was doing incredible rock music. So there was so much different expression. And even on television and movies, there was so much different expression. So I was really appreciative of the 90s era just in America in general, you know, in Western culture too, throughout the world. And so also I think um, it was just absolutely mind-blowing to be a part of such a uh, movement in hip-hop where this conscious but popular um, selling well music was embraced by the world and we're touring the world. We're touring Canada, United States, and it just was mind blowing. Now, mind you, it's our first album, so we had nothing to compare it to. We didn't have a lot of experience. So it's seeing everything through Virgin eyes. And that's always in and of itself, pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it was mind-blowing, a mind-blowing time period. I bet. Now, I've heard it said that that album was a reaction against gangster rap. Would you say that's a fair assessment? I would say that it is to juxtapose gangster rap, not necessarily fight it. Right. To show more sides of black life. Because I grew up in Milwaukee. Milwaukee is an extremely segregated city as far as success is concerned. If you're black, you, you pretty much live in the ghetto. And if you're other races, you pretty much live everywhere else. And so it is truly a one side of the track, other side of the track reality. Hmm. I see the the poverty. I see the um, problems that go on within the black community on hyperdrive when I'm in Milwaukee. So when you see that and you hear this gangster hip hop, which was so prevalent everywhere, it was reinforcing a lot of this toxicity, a lot of the same negativity. And unfortunately, even to the point of reinforcing literal killings and death in our communities, that it was necessary for me to show the other sides, which is really the more prevalent side of the black community. People that are hardworking, people that work the land, which is, you know, a whole other aspect that's not shown in gangster rap. People that care about their families and children flat out. It's their most prominent you know, factor in their life. Like these are things that weren't being talked about a lot, the homeless, mm -hmm. you know, um, so on and so forth. So these are all things that I wanted to bring to the forefront with our group. And we did. And, and it was definitely a refreshing thing for so many millions upon millions of people throughout the world. We've spoken to a lot of people who have experienced instant fame. So how do you think you handled it? I think I handled it as well as anyone could considering the circumstances. It is mm -hmm. instantaneous. And we weren't a group that that was already out for quite a long time. So we did, it took us three years, five months and two days to get a record deal. So we were together for that long. But <laughs> I talked to Michael Stipe from REM and he was telling me one day, he was like, you know, Speech, you guys had your hit the first record. We, we had 10 records or so to do horribly right. just to suck as a group. And then we got better and better over time. So his point was, is we had a chance to really get comfortable in our skin. You guys didn't. And that's so true. Like for us, it was not only having a hit record as our first debut record, but it was also finding ourselves all at the same time. And that's tough to do. So yeah, it, I think I handled it as best as I could. So I say that to say I didn't, I've made tons of mistakes, and there's numerous things that I wish I could have done better, but of course I didn't know. So do you think then, uh, it's funny It's funny that you said what you said about Michael Stipe. My next question literally was, would you have been able to handle it differently if it had been your second or third album instead? And I'm talking about the fame, of course. I definitely think I could have, because yeah. I think the group has only gotten better. 
So now we're in 2021, and I think the group is at the best place maturity-wise. Musically, we're more profound, I believe. And we're just in a place where we get it now. And if I had to assume what it would have been like if it would have been our third album that blew up or whatever, I think we would have been at least better off than we were as far as how to handle fame than we were our right. first record. So I'm very grateful either which way, because I still have a lot of people I grew up with that never did make it. And we were all peers in this music thing. So I'm grateful, but I do realize it could have been probably a lot easier if I'd have had more experience. Mm -hmm. Are there any moments from that time where it was just mind blowing? Like you're all of a sudden playing in front of 50,000 people. I would imagine that the Grammys were a big one when you guys won Best New Artist. What big moments do you remember from that time? Honestly, we performed commonly, usually in front of 20,000 or more fans. And we performed, our biggest show was for Woodstock 1996 or 1994. Yep. And it was 250,000 human beings in front of us. That's just outrageous. Um, you know, that's usually reserved for the Michael Jacksons, the Paul McCartneys and the Beatles, you know, stuff like that. I mean, that yeah. was just outrageous. So that was by far our biggest show that we've ever done. But I would say just meeting some of the people we've gotten a chance to meet, Nelson Mandela, I mean, you know, come on. It was just such an amazing scenario to be not only performing for him, but to do a speech because... I speak, you know, my name's Speech. <laughs> so I speak, and I did a speech right before his speech. We got a chance to talk. You know, things like that were just um, sort of outer body experiences and so such highlights. The one other thing I'd love to say is that Arrested Development put out what I believe is our best record since our debut album, and it's called Don't Fight Your Demons. And I, I'd be sad if I didn't tell the listeners to check that piece out. I think it's, it's possibly our best record. And so... Um, yeah, it's on streaming service. Speech, you have a new single out called A Different World, and within a week of the insurrection on the Capitol in Washington, D.C., you put out a new single which kind of captures the pain of that day. It's called A Different World. So tell us about that song. Yeah, so that song was, especially coming from a black man, the perspective that I was coming from, which is not only the, um, the disgrace to the capital of this country by these insurrectionists, but also the leniency of the security and police forces, mm -hmm. not calling the army, not calling the you know National Guard, whereas black people who are, in most instances, peacefully protesting are met with such heavy military um, presence. And that's yeah. scary as a non-white person or a non-white man in particular. So yeah. the song talks about that. And then sort of the, the theme at the end of the song is white, black, Asian, Latinx, whatever you are, that we can make a different world. Because I think that there is such a need to make a different statement than what was made on January 6th. Let's have a listen to a bit of that right now. Speech from the album Expansion and the very powerful single, A Different World. Hip-hop is from the school of Hillman, so we can make a different world. We can make a different world. We can make a different world. Speech, my co-host Christopher and I have talked a lot about the lack of protest music recently. 
despite the very tumultuous times we live in. Now, I do vaguely remember around the turn of the late 60s and early 70s. Now, I was a child then, but there was more protest music. I think of the song For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield, which was written by Stephen Stills. I think of the song Ohio by Neil Young uh, for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, you know, to protest the shooting of the unarmed students at, uh, at Kent State University. And so there was a real growth of protest and protest music. And I think a lot of people think that they had a lot more to protest about, mostly because of the draft in Vietnam and, of course, civil rights. And now I think there's just as much to protest about, but I hear fewer protest songs. Why do you think that is? Maybe I'm just listening to the wrong stations. No, I don't think you are. I personally think that from a mainstream perspective, because obviously today, you have streaming services, you have, you know, the internet in general, where there's numerous mediums where people can release music. But from a mainstream perspective, there is far less protest music. And I believe it's because we have allowed huge corporations to create conglomerates that are running most of the mainstream mediums. And so because of that, they are really have not allowed protest music to be a part of what their um, energy is going to be going out to the, to the world and to the nation. And so, unfortunately, there's a lot less voices, in other words, are, are a lot less music activists that are, that are controlling the output that is going to get to mainstream. Well, Speech, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. The new album is called Expansion. The new single is called A Different World. And the most recent album from Arrested Development, check that out too. That's from 2020. Thanks again, Speech. All the best. Thank you. That's Speech of Arrested Development in conversation with Tom Jokic from just a few days ago. You're listening to Famous Lost Words, and now it is time for TJ versus the VJ. That's right. I'm TJ. I'm Tom Jokic, and that's the VJ, Christopher Ward, the original Much Music VJ. And this is where we go at it tooth and nail, and we try to stump each other with our quote unquote vast knowledge of musical trivia. Yeah, I'm going to start with an easy one for you, okay? All right. In 1967, Peter Sotero went to see a band called The Big Thing. Now, that band changed its name to what when he joined as an original member? Oh, uh, well, that would be Chicago or Chicago Transit Authority. Ah, you got me. Yeah, okay. Chicago Transit Authority, which they only kept for one album. Okay. Oh, so the trick part of that question was whether I knew it was the Chicago Transit Authority, right? Exactly. CTA for the insiders. Uh, CTA. Okay, okay. <laughs> so what famous group was Bob Dylan's backing band in 1986 and again in 1987 there's a couple i'm going to say the grateful dead okay so the grateful dead was the backing group for one of those tours and the other one would, would, would be tom petty and the heartbreakers tom petty and the heartbreakers is what i was looking for okay good 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 okay can i ask you another one no it's my turn <laughs> <laughs> okay okay smarty pants go what's the location of Joni mitchell's song raised on robbery um well, she's sitting in the lounge of the Empire Hotel. <laughs> All Is right. That right. And you get bonus points. You get bonus points if you can tell me where the Empire Hotel was located. I'm going to say it's northern Ontario, 
because just because of the, I, I don't know, it's just a feeling I get from the song. I'm going to say Northern Ontario or else Winnipeg, Manitoba. But it's weird because I'm saying Ontario because of the line, a little money riding on the Maple Leafs. So it's a, it's a Toronto Maple Leaf kind of fan. Nicely done. But it, you know what? It was Huntsville, Ontario, but it that ah, burned down. Okay. Um, okay, Mr. Much Music. What was the very first music video <laughs> played on Much Music? Oh, the first one was, it was by UB Blake. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it was a music video, sort of, but it was this um, historical piece was one of the very right. earliest times that music and uh, picture were, were married. Yes. Okay. That's uh, not what I was looking for. Okay. What about the first music video specifically made f- as a music video for MTV and much? I'm going to say it was Rush and the Enemy Within. Oh, good one. Good one. You know I'm not all that familiar with that song, but of course I remember Rush from that era with their videos and their rolled up, uh, you know, jacket sleeves where they look like Mr. Mr. and stuff like that. But anyway, okay. (laughs) Back to you, Christopher. You got one for me? Yeah, this is is just a gimme. Mickey Thomas, the co-lead singer of Jefferson Starship along with Grace Slick, not only sang lead on one of Tom Jokic's favorite songs, We Built This City, (sighs) he was also the lead singer in another group, on a Billboard Top 10 song. Who was that, and what was that song? Okay, well, the song was called Fooled Around and Fell in Love by uh, the Elvin Bishop group, right? You got it. Yeah, and you know, listen, I think Mickey Thomas has a great voice. He's It's so apparent in that song, um, Fooled Around and Fell in Love. We built this city. (laughs) Yeah, we built this city on rock and roll. If you're new to the show, We Built This City by Starship is my least favorite song in the history of recorded music. Um, and, and that's saying a lot because I have a lot of least favorite songs, but that is number one, uh, with a bullet as it were. And, um, but you know, I liked him. I liked him on Jane by, by Jefferson Starship. You know what? Let's just keep going. What video, Christopher, was so controversial that it cost the performer a Pepsi sponsorship? Hmm. I'm trying to think. That's not the Michael Jackson one where his hair caught on fire, is it? Well, the video that video wasn't controversial. That was for a Pepsi commercial, and I was wondering if you might mention that. So that's not the answer I'm looking for. I'm I'm looking for a video that had a lot of religious imagery and was was uh, condemned by the Catholic Church. Well, then it has to be Madonna, like a prayer. Yes, exactly right. Very good. Very good. All mine are way too easy, but here's one for you anyway. Who is the only three-time inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Okay, well, having listened to previous episodes of this show, I know that it is (laughs) Eric Clapton. Yes, you're right. An (laughs) 18-time Grammy winner. Now, Eric for his solo work, Eric for Cream, and Eric for... And the Yardbirds. Okay. And he didn't even like yeah. being in that group, but there you go. Okay. <laughs> okay, Christopher, I got another question for you. What city produced the bands Def Leppard, Human League, ABC, Arctic Monkeys, among many others? Sheffield? Right. Sheffield, England. There you go. Good one. All right. Tom, the song Underneath It All was no doubt's highest charting U.S. single, but didn't fare nearly as well elsewhere. One reviewer called it an embarrassingly self-conscious reggae pastiche unimproved by a guest rap from Jamaican dance hall Queen Lady Saw. Ouch. <laughs> Is there a question here, or do you just need to say that? Yeah. No, no, it's, 
It was it was produced by the Jamaican superstar rhythm section Sly and Robbie, but it was co-written by which British hitmaker? Oh, did I get um, him, ladies and gentlemen? Have boy. I really tripped him up? I think maybe you oh, have underneath good. it all, but a British hitmaker. You know what, Christopher? I have no idea. Dave Stewart. Oh wow! You know what? I didn't actually mind. That I know. Song. I love that song. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite song by No Doubt. I think it's fantastic. One last one for you, Christopher. The song Son of a Preacher Man was a hit for Dusty Springfield, but it was originally written for what other singer? Aretha Franklin. (laughs) Well, there you go. TJ versus the VJ. We got each other on a couple. We we redeemed ourselves on a couple. And of course, Christopher, (laughs) for no apparent reason, just wants to stab me in the neck by reminding me of how much I hate the song... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I hate the song, We Built This City. I guess you tried to kind of bloody me up a little bit before you tried to take me down with a few uh, with a few trivia questions. <laughs> no, no, this is what friends are for. Right? <laughs> exactly right. TJ versus the VJ on Famous Last Words. Well, that was fun. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. <laughs> it's what we live for, folks. Famous Last Words was created and produced by Mr. Tom Jokic, executive producer Sarah Cummings. Special thanks to Mike Ben Dixon. Our show is co-written by Christopher Ward. In fact, because he's a songwriter, all the hooky parts, or the parts you remember the most, were probably <laughs> written by him. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to get caught up on past episodes of the show on Apple Pods, Spotify, or the iHeartRadio app, and hit the subscribe button. Now, if you like the show, please tell all of your friends and give us a five-star review, if that suits you. And let us know your thoughts or suggestions for the show on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you'd like to sponsor our show and get your message out to tens of thousands of listeners, email us, famouslostpod at gmail.com. Famous Lost Pod.